I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm bringing you this podcast from the iHeart Breakthrough Radio Studios in Philadelphia. I've been looking forward to this particular episode for some time because the woman I'm about to introduce you to is a living legend and my hero. Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams is a pioneer in the field of neuropathology. Her career at CHOP spanned 50 years, and in fact, she retired just three years ago at the young age of 86. There isn't much that Lucy hasn't seen in her career, and she's even been given a piece of Albert Einstein's brain to examine. We'll hear about that in a few minutes. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me here today. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here and to be with you. Lucy, as somebody who's had such a long career in medicine, you were really a pioneer as a woman, and I can imagine you have quite a few stories to talk about as one of few or maybe the only woman in your medical school class or on the faculty at the hospital. Well, there are many stories that we could talk for days. Mm-hmm. In medical school, we started out with 10 women in a class, and at the end of the first year, there were five. Uh, The other five left for various reasons. I have to say that we were never treated any differently from the men in our class in medical school, and I can speak for my fellow women. We were accepted equally. The only time I felt any kind of onus or problem was in my senior year when I went to see the chief of neurosurgery and told him that I had ideas about becoming a neurosurgeon. Uh, He looked at me, had a nice, quiet smile on his face, and he said, you'll starve to death if you follow that course because nobody will send a patient to a woman neurosurgeon. Other than that, I was treated equally, and I have to say that throughout the entire career, I've never felt that my gender was a drawback at all. Well, that's actually very hopeful to hear that, and and for other women to know that as a pioneer, you didn't feel treated differently. In fact, I remember at your retirement party and hearing some of the neurosurgeons who were talking about um, interacting with you when they were in in the operating room and they were calling over a speakerphone to you in the in the pathology lab and. And you probably dressing a few of them down and them feeling a little nervous about that. So it sounds like you you were able to hold your own in your career. Oh, we had a wonderful relationship. But my modus operandi throughout my career was that my colleague, I was a consultant to the surgeons, basically. That's what a pathologist is. We're a teacher, and we are there to help the clinicians in whatever way we can to take care of the patients. Most families don't know that a pathologist exists. They have no idea how important the work of a pathologist is in their own lives and in the lives of their children. We're hidden away, but we are of utmost value to our clinical colleagues because if we don't give them the proper information about the diseases of their children, and particularly in the children with the brain tumors, then there's no pathway to follow for the treatment of those children. So they're extremely dependent on us, and it's extremely important for us to be treated collegially. And if we think that they're doing something that is not for the 
good are the patients, then we speak up too. We are equals. In my relationship with the neurosurgeons at CHOP, it was a equal existence, and I felt I was an important part of the team, and they recognized the fact that I did my utmost to be accurate in what I did because we were both working toward the same goal. Our goal was to take care of these children who came to the hospital for help. Well, Lucy, you just did such a nice job of explaining what a pathologist does to the lay audience, but you're a neuropathologist. Maybe you could explain what your subspecialty is. Well, basically a pathologist diagnoses diseases on the basis of looking at tissues sent from the operating room, surgical specimens, primarily tumors in uh, children's, and learning about disease at autopsies. When an individual comes to the hospital and is treated and whose treatment doesn't lead to a cure and they die, we try to determine why they died. What went wrong? Was it a mistake on somebody's part? Was it the inexorable course of the disease that could not be cured by anybody? So again, basically, we are the consultant to the clinicians to help them understand the diseases that the patients come to the hospital uh, and to them for treatment. So we do post-mortem examinations, and we are the ones who are basically the gold standard. What we say at the end of life, or when we look at a tumor that comes to us, is basically the standard upon which we learn about disease or on the basis of which they treat disease and know how, which road to take, which drugs to give to try to treat the disease. And a neuropathologist spends a lot of time with tissue samples of the brain, and I always thought it was such a great story that you were one of the very few pathologists that were given a sample of Albert Einstein's brain to study. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, that was a, a very interesting story. After I completed my internship at the Philadelphia General Hospital, I remained there uh, for residency in pathology. The pathologist who was in charge, Dr. William Eric, was a quite remarkable scholar. They had a very active residency program in pathology. The pathologist who did the postmortem examination on Einstein at the Princeton Hospital had also trained at Philadelphia General Hospital and had studied under Dr. Eric. Dr. Eric, in addition to being chairman of pathology at Philadelphia General, was also chief of pathology in the Graduate School of Medicine at Penn, which was right next door. He had a, a laboratory there, and a technician in his laboratory was a remarkable German lady by the name of Mrs. Keller. The pathologist who did the postmortem knew about this laboratory. So when he did the postmortem examination, Dr. Einstein died in 1955. He died as a consequence of a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. There was permission for the autopsy, but no specific permission to remove the brain. The pathologist removed the brain without permission. Now, it was a very interesting thing. Einstein did not want to be buried in a tomb someplace because he did not want people to make pilgrimages to his grave. So he specified that he should be cremated. 
So he was cremated. His ashes were thrown into the Delaware River, but the brain was removed without permission of the family and sent to Philadelphia to Dr. Eric in his laboratory. So five sets of slides were made, and the fifth set was given to Dr. Eric as a gift, having had the slides made at his laboratory. So when I entered my residency in 1958, I discovered that there was this box of slides of Einstein's brain in Dr. Eric's laboratory. Now, he never really said anything about them. When he died in 1967, his wife gave this set of slides to one of my colleagues. So he kept the slides. So some years passed, and finally Mrs. Eric died. One morning, I was sitting in my office on the third floor of the pathology building, and my colleague, Al Steinberg, appeared in the doorway with this wooden box in his hand. So without preamble, he said to me, Lucy, you're a neuropathologist. I don't know anything about the brain. Here are Einstein's brain slides. I'm giving them to you. (laughs) That's how I got them. Wow. Yes. That's quite a story. Yes. And you donated them as well. Well, it's interesting. I kept them in a file drawer in my office at CHOP because I came over to CHOP in 65. From time to time, people would hear that I had the slides and would come and say, can I look at Einstein's brain? So I'd pull them out and show them. At one point, uh, BBC came. They were doing a program entitled Einstein in America, and they had been directed to me through the University of Pennsylvania, and so they came and they spent a day with me, videoing me with the slides. After about 35 years, I was getting on in years, and I decided, now these really belong in a museum. Well, at that time, I was on the Board of Trustees of the College of Physicians, which is the oldest physician's medical society in the United States. It was established in 1787. And they have the famous Mutter Museum there. So I thought these slides belong there. Six or seven years ago, I gave them to the college. And that was quite a, an event. They're displayed beautifully at the college And the most ironic turn of events has occurred because after I gave them to the college, there was a considerable amount of publicity. So this was in early November. And on the day after Thanksgiving of that year, 900 people came to the college to view Einstein's brain. And since that time, it has really become the destination for venerating Einstein that he never really wanted. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I hope he's not very angry. <laughs> yeah, after right. You were trying to do the right thing for yes. science, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. That's quite a story, too. In your 50 years at CHOP, you had a number of roles, a neuropathologist. You were chair of the Department of Pathology. You were president of the medical staff. And in that role, you were tapped to run the hospital as the president in an interim way to help recruit a new CEO. What was that like? Well, first of all, I had been asked for several years in succession to become the president of the medical staff. And I had steadfastly refused because I had been chairman of the Department of Pathology at Philadelphia General. I had been the president of the medical staff at Philadelphia General. I had been 
medical director for 10 months because the medical director died while I was resident. So I had done a considerable amount of management. And I was really much happier being a neuropathologist than I was being a manager. So when I was at CHOP, I didn't really want any management roles. Each time I was asked to become president, I refused. Well, finally, they assured me that I wouldn't have any management responsibilities. I simply had to appear at fundraising dinners and nice social events and things like that. So finally, I agreed. Well, unfortunately, almost simultaneous with the assumption of my role as president of medical staff, the CEO was fired by the Board of Trustees. So I was told, well, you know more about what goes on at the hospital than anybody else. So until we get a new CEO, you have to take on those responsibilities and share them with the chief operating officer, who was a wonderful gentleman by the name of Bill Bricker. So for 18 months until that position was filled, Bill Bricker and I ran the hospital. And this involved being available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 18 months. In addition to being the neuropathologist, in addition to my other duties as president of the medical staff, and in addition to the research work that I was doing with the Wistar Institute, the work that I was doing with the medical examiner's office, so it was an extremely busy time. I could expect a telephone call at any hour of the day or night, as I'm sure you've discovered in your role as a CEO. You never know what problem is going to be tossed into your lap, and you have to be ready to help solve them. Well, so much for it being a ceremonial role as president of the medical staff. (laughs) But I think it's sort of the old adage that if you ask a a busy, incompetent person to do it, it'll get done well. And your ability to be a, a wonderful neuropathologist, but also a leader as well. And I feel the same way. When I look back on those days, I cannot imagine when I slept, when I had a time to be a normal human being, which I did, and somehow or other... Everything got done. It was amazing and wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think it's because of who you are and the respect that you commanded then and now from your colleagues at CHOP. So, Lucy, um, this podcast is called Breaking Through. And in that 50-year career, uh, can you point to something that you experienced or a part of that was a major breakthrough in children's health care? Well, I should go back to how I became a pediatric pathologist and neuropathologist. On my first day of residency at Philadelphia General, I was sitting in the room with the other residents. The chairman of the department walked into the room and he looked around. He came over to my chair and he said to me, you're the only girl here. Pediatrics is the province of ladies and you have to do all the pediatric autopsies. And in those days, when the chief gave you some instruction, you said, yes, sir, I did what he said. I never would have considered being a pediatric pathologist. Actually, pediatric pathology was a specialty in its infancy. So the specialty was just beginning to develop. So during my three years of general pathology residency, I did all the pediatric autopsies. I interacted with the pediatricians and developed a fascination 
for the diseases of children. When I decided to go into neuropathology, it seemed appropriate to focus on the nervous system of children. This was in 1961. At that time, there was very little in the English literature dealing with the brain of babies and children. Most of the information was in German. Fortunately, I could read German. So, and we had a tremendous amount of material, unfortunately, at Philadelphia General. So I had an opportunity to see many, many babies. So I was challenged with putting into the English literature what I was discovering at the autopsy table at, at my microscope about the tumors of children and the diseases of children, especially newborns, and to build into the English literature a base of information that would be helpful to pathologists who had the task of studying these brains. Most pathologists tried to ignore the brain of the baby. Technologically, it was very difficult to handle. The brain of a newborn is really like a bowl of cello, and it's a major problem to fix it properly, get good microscopic sections so you can look at it. So I was basically a pioneer in establishing the field of pediatric neuropathology by techniques that I developed, by information that I gleaned from looking at hundreds of cases. I also discovered that I had to spread my wings outside of the actual looking at the material because there were many problems that presented themselves to me for diagnosis for which there were no answers in the literature. For example, I saw many malformations of infant brains. And uh, at that time, the textbooks basically described what the malformation was in terms of the morphology but there were really no answers in terms of what were the causes of these malformations. And this became progressively more frustrating to me because I didn't want to stop at just describing things and taking pictures of them and putting them into the records because that wasn't of any help to anybody. So as the years went on, I turned to the basic science literature of the field of developmental neurobiology that was being uh, studied and that was uh, appearing in the literature. And there were fantastic studies that were being done with fruit flies and a little worm called Cinerabditus elegans. This work was being done in England primarily, and subsequently the pioneers in this field were given a Nobel Prize for their work. But I discovered through their work, applications that I could apply to the study of the human brain and the malformations that I was seeing in the human brain. So over a period of years of reading the literature outside of the actual area of the pediatric, human pediatric neuropathology, I formulated a hypothesis and I wrote a paper that appeared in the Journal of Neuropathology and Experimental Neurology in 1994. 
It was basically called a hypothesis paper. And in this paper, on the basis of my studies, I advanced the idea that the same genetic abnormalities that were being identified in C. elegans and Drosophila, the root fly, were at work in the development of the human brain. The genes in the development in the early stages were the same. By that time, there was some experimental evidence to corroborate and to suggest that this was indeed the case. When this paper came out, one of my colleagues from Belgium sent me an email and he said, Lucy, I wish I had written that paper. In the subsequent 20 plus years since the publication of that paper, the experimental literature and the literature in understanding malformations in human brains has corroborated the fact that it was a proper hypothesis. So I regard that as one of my major contributions to how to understand the human brain and the brain of the baby and what goes wrong, I think is one of my major contributions to the field. But it's something that evolved over a long period of time. It wasn't a simple aha moment, but as the information was being processed in my brain and as I was observing the material that came to me at autopsies, uh, I started to put these things together and was able to formulate the hypothesis, which has proven to be a very valid hypothesis. Well, it may not have happened overnight, but I would say that's a breakthrough with a capital B because it's really informed everything we do today in our research of the brain of babies and children. And I feel very humble to have the opportunity to, to have worked with you and somebody who's had such uh, contributions to the field. Thank you. I think it would be great for the listeners to hear that your curiosity and your talents have continued beyond your retirement at CHOP. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in the last three years since you retired. Well, as I was anticipating retirement, I thought that I wanted to study astronomy. In fact, my husband bought me a telescope. Unfortunately, there's too much light pollution where I live. So it's almost impossible to go outside at night and look through a telescope and expect to see anything much. So I haven't made much progress on that. What's kept me busy, I've become a trustee of a foundation that my husband established uh, back in 1999, which is focused on training high school teachers teaching students in math, physics, chemistry, and biology uh, to improve the quality of education for American high school kids in these disciplines. And it's a very, very active foundation. It's had fantastic success. And so this keeps both of us busy, making certain that things are done well, that we support the high school teachers who are selected about 35 teachers are selected each year and are mentored then through a program that lasts for five years in improving their ability to teach and to mentor the kids. So this is a very important part of my life at this point. Well, hopefully some of the students that benefit from that will be our future scientists. And, yeah. um, you know, I think for, for somebody like me, 
who is very focused on ensuring that we have a great pipeline, a program like this is really, truly wonderful. So Lucy, before we end our conversation, is there anything else you wanted to mention today for the audience? Well, what I would like to mention is my gratitude to our Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They provided me with the opportunity to advance my career. They gave me freedom to follow my interests. I was there, I was hired to do a job of neuropathologist, and I knew what I had to do, so I didn't need anybody to tell me what I had to do. But I was given enough freedom to advance and follow leads that were brought to me with questions from my colleagues for help. There aren't very many pediatric neuropathologists in the world. As people discovered that there was one at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I was consulted by a great many people. So the combination of all of those things and the availability of everything at CHOP and the collegiality among the staff were really the most exciting things that the gifts that I received. And at age 86, I was very unhappy to walk away from it all. (laughs) Well, we were actually unhappy to lose you because you've made so many contributions to the field. And I can say I'm grateful to that physician who directed you to be a pediatric pathologist because you've made so many advances and so many breakthroughs in the field that are informed the research and, and the patient care that we do today. So Lucy, thank you so much for being here to join me for this conversation today. Thank you. And to learn more about how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell, and thank you for listening. 